0: How's it guys? You're listening to sasurfski.com. We're all about surfski, we're all about paddling. And your host, Robin Tyndall, is coming in hot straight out of Cape Town. Hey guys, welcome to sasurfski.com. This is the first of a series of podcasts, hopefully, that we're putting together. Uh, covering everything surf ski. In fact, beyond surf ski, we want to talk about paddling. And uh, we're hoping to really bring some of the movers and shakers in the paddling world, some of our celebrities, some of our coaches, and even some of the guys that are behind the scenes doing the hard work. Uh, we're hoping to bring forward onto this podcast. But today, I'm really stoked to be kicking off number one with one of my favorite paddlers, one of my favorite people, uh, Haley Arthur. And uh, Haley, I always, sorry, I've got to, I, I, you're listening right now. I've got to just jump in. I always get it backwards and forwards with your maiden name. So just put me right, because I know I've known you before you're married and after you're married. So right now you are Haley Arthur. Have I got this right?
1: No, right now I'm, I'm Haley Nixon.
0: Out, <laughs> I'm really going wrong, guys. It's Haley Nixon. I'm sorry, so it's No, it's,
1: it happens all the time. And the funny thing is last year, so obviously I've been Haley Nixon for a couple of years. And then last year... I had to submit my passport for World Marathon Champs um, affiliation, which is still Arthur, so all of a sudden I'm getting called Haley Arthur again. So I think the whole world is as confused as you. So don't don't worry. Apparently Haley Arthur when I'm paddling flatwater and I'm Haley Nixon when I paddle surf ski. Well I figured it out.
0: Arthur is A. It's the first thing in the alphabet. So that's where you started at A. Uh, <laughs> You've gone. You're at N. You're at Nixon. It's married. You know. So 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 that so that's going to work for my head. I hope it works for you guys out there. But but we really oh, start to have Haley Nixon with us now. So if anyone's been living under a rock you don't know who Haley Nixon is. You don't know who Hayley Arthur is. She's our current World, sk- uh, world Surf Ski Champion. She's also the unofficial World Surf ski Champion because Molokai for a long time was considered the unofficial <laughs> World Surf Ski Champs. And uh, Haley's just kind of uh, gone out there and set the world on fire and broke the course record and took the Molokai uh, title as well. So she's got the unofficial and the official World Champ. She's also, we're very proud to say, the current uh, Bamboo Warehouse Freedom pedal. Uh, title holder along with the under 18 world champ who's also South African Sabina Laurie. So we're, we're very, very uh, excited about that. And for us, actually, we think that's more important than anything else, but maybe that's, that's, <laughs> that's there. But above all for, for me, uh, Haley's an amazing person. I'm slowly getting to know her after the last, uh, over the last couple of years. And um, I think she's also a, absolutely perfect role model for what a pro athlete should be there's so many pro athletes out there i and stott's one of my favorite pro athletes and Haley's in, a, in a, exactly the same model so hayley uh, we're, I'm, I'm really excited that a person like you is actually a role model for some of the new athletes that are coming through in our sport so so welcome and thanks for joining us on the very first podcast for sewski.com
1: wow that was um that's quite an introduction thanks robin um Jeepers, to be put on the same, um, to be to be put in the same uh, sentences and start is quite an honour. Um, he's definitely an athlete. I think we all look up to. Just a just a really humble, really humble good guy, and um, and the results to back it. Um, and yes, it's it's been a it's been a couple of hectic years, and I'm I'm not surprised if people don't know who I am because uh, I'm relatively new to the fray. But um, but it's been an exponential learning curve and, and an unbelievable um, wave to ride. Yeah, so here we are.
0: So, so on that night, I was digging around, doing a little bit of research, and um, you know, I, was, I haven't been in paddling that long, but I've been paddling longer than you have, and I remember you arriving on the scene back when I was still staying in Durban, and I think that was uh, around early 2013, if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw you wobbling around, in a, uh, I think maybe you've been messing around in surfski, but I saw you at the river falling in and out, but you've only been involved with paddling <laughs> from 2013, so what happened before then, and, and what led you to a ski?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. I was the girl always swimming in the blue lagoon, um, instead of actually sitting in a boat. But yeah, I started um I started rowing when I was probably eighteen years old. Um and uh through university and then um at Tux with the National Squad in Pretoria I, I pretty much spent the better part of ten years rowing. So either single skulls um, or pairs rowing and, and eights and fours, you know, all the sort of varsity boat races and then a good sort of six years or so within the, the national rowing squad out in Pretoria. Um, so that was, that was kind of my, my life's work work before I came across, before I came across paddling. Um, the goal then, and like it always does with rowers, is, is to try and make the Olympic team and to go to the Olympics. That's, that's really your penultimate in rowing. And that's what kind of differentiates rowing and paddling is um, rowing is an unbelievable sport, but the, the kind of, the only real thing to, to work towards is, is the Olympics um, it's, it's all about sprinting. It's, it's, the, it's the equivalent of sprint hiking. Um, but the nice thing with, with canoeing as a discipline is that obviously if, if you aren't a sprinter or if you don't want to be a sprinter, there's so many other disciplines to, to dapple with. Um, but to cut a, a really excessively long story short, I got very close to Olympics final three, being selected for 2012 Olympics. And unfortunately, they chose the other two and not me. Um, so it didn't leave me with many options. Um, I was 28 years old, Uh, had studied excessively I'd studied for seven years had qualified as a biokineticist but hadn't really started working yet and my parents kind of said enough's enough like we we can't fund this anymore you had your shot you haven't made it (laughs) can you get a real job now wow um yeah so that was a harsh reality um and and years have have softened my feelings towards it but it was it was extremely tough at the time and it was it was heartbreaking and um, I think there was a lot of anger and um, just a just a hugely huge disappointment and i 'm sure we 'll reflect later on that as well um, just this idea that you you create yourself as a as a thing as a person as an idea as a rower as a future olympian, and then when it doesn 't happen um, you you 're often quite empty and you left kind of starting from zero and that's it 's a weird thing for an athlete to go through from kind of thinking you were the top of your game to starting, to starting from, from ground, you know, ground zero again. Um, but it, it led me back to derbs. And, um, while I'd always known about paddling and known a lot of paddlers and seconded doozy and fish several times, I'd never paddled myself. Um, and it wasn't actually at first the, the, um, kind of desire for me to paddle and become a paddler. I actually had joined a team of, X rowers that were raising money to row across the Atlantic um, in an eight-man rowing crew. There's a there's a race every year where a whole lot of crews uh, race to, like across the across the Atlantic Ocean. But there's also just a world record attempt that can happen at any stage. You can choose your you know like your weather conditions and go and go and row yourself across the Atlantic. Anyway, um, because I was fit from from almost going to Olympics and um, still very keen. I got hold of these guys that were doing this event and said, can I join? And they said, 100%. You've got to try and raise yourself 2 million rand to be in the crew, but we'd love to have you. Um, and, and whilst trying to fundraise for, the, for this event, I thought, well, like, what's the only way I can actually prepare myself to, to be in the ocean for, I don't know, 90 days, whatever it was going to take us to row across the Atlantic? Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't have access to an ocean rowing boat, so the plan was to paddle ski um and that's exactly how it started I I phoned around a few friends that paddled Nick Burden in in particular was was my big mentor then um and uh he said get hold of Barry Lewin he's got a surf ski school and um honestly the rest is history I I started with Barry um kind of did a few sessions with Barry then heard about Lee McGregor and this the squad that he had training at Blue Lagoon joined them and uh yeah I've, I've you know it hasn't I haven't stayed with Lee, I've moved to other coaches, but, but by all means, that's where it all started and, and this is where I am now. And that was, I think that was beginning of 2013. Yeah, so here we are.
0: Yeah, I think that beginning of 2013 is kind of where you bubbled up across my, my radar. I was very much, a, and still am very much a fish and chips paddler. But uh, yeah, you notice when there's a new person on the scene. But we, we've been, Haley. Be a couple of the questions I've got uh, for you today, I've, you know, we've gone, I've gone and spoken to some of the people out and around and asked uh, what kind of things they'd like to know. And uh, I'm also involved in getting new people started in surfski quite regularly. um, I get asked questions and and I I tend to help a couple of people get started. And um, I want to ask you, based off that, how long did it take you until you felt you had surfski mastered? Now, when I say mastered, no one has surfski mastered ever, uh, maybe with the exception of one or two. But how long did you feel until had you you kind of had the sport down that you felt confident from from where you started with kind of the idea, how long did it take and and what was that trigger point where you kind of thought, you know I've got this now
1: yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know that there was sort of an ever ever a moment, but yeah i guess I guess the race a race king of the bay in in twenty fifteen um the king of the bay is what now so around about may and i think that's so that would have been two years into into paddling and i reckon it's that i reckon you need a a solid two years and i think in your second and end of your second and your third year is when things start to happen um and i remember nikki russell saying to me way back then maybe a year into it yeah Hales, promise you in two years two to three years that's when you'll really have this you know have this paddling thing down and you'll be comfortable in your boat and, and she was right. Within two years, I, I was probably more comfortable. Um, like you said, it's it, how long's a piece of string. I mean, we've all got more and more school. We want to learn, but um, I don't know if it was just me, Robin. But I, I took a long time to get stable. I took a long time to to feel comfortable in my boat, sitting still, um, to really feel comfortable in in competitive K ones. And I think I think that's the crisis that paddlers face, is especially if you come from another sport where you were fit and strong, is that we we want to rush, like, to the thoroughbred, like, we want to be on the good horse, and um, that often means you compromise your results, and I, I, think, I think it's, um, I probably tried to go too fast, I tried to get into the skinnier boats, and that possibly slowed me down, if I'd actually just been humble enough to, to stay in the bigger, more stable boats, I might have actually, um, you know, I think got comfortable quicker, and actually still been able to, to be fast, instead of trying to get into the skinny boats. And then kind of hamstringing myself because I was so busy trying not to fall out of it that I couldn't actually use my ability anyway. Um, so in answer to your question, I think, um, I think probably two to three years if you realistically want to be um, going nicely, given, given that you come from a fit background, um, if that makes sense.
0: It absolutely makes sense. And for me, the, the, there were a couple of takeaway points there. But for, for, for anyone who's listening, who's kind of starting with the sport and maybe being frustrated, one thing I want to point out there is, is we're, we're, we're talking to the world surf ski champion right now. And she's telling us that it took her two years, or uh, well, maybe a bit less, but it took her a long period of time to get her balance. So uh, if you're sitting in your boat and yeah. you're falling out all the time, you know, even the world's best. It took a while to get them, so so hang in, hang in there, guys. If you're struggling with your boat, uh, it will come right. But but Haley, I agree with you completely. Is is stability before ability always gets put out there? And I think it's so true because you learn a better technique, and everything's better if you just stay in a in a stable boat uh, uh, for for longer. But but persevere, it comes right. Everybody does eventually get their balance down on this on this sport. So that, that's a very nice point. But
1: also, it's um I think what people also forget, and and even like maybe when I was morphing into a better paddler is like I I always, and I say this to clients and patients at work as well. Like if you, if you're right-handed and you want to learn to write with your left hand, you, you can't practice with your left hand once a week or twice a month. Then it's going to take you five years. If you can do it every day, obviously you're going to learn exponentially faster. So, so on paper you might say, Oh, well it, you know, it took so and so, a year and they've got it right well maybe that person paddled every day for a year if, if you're only paddling once a month you're only paddling 12 times in a year you're gonna take longer and, and I think that's important as well um, is, is consistency like paddling half an hour every day is probably gonna be better for you than trying to sit in that twitchy boat once a week
0: so that runs straight into my next question here is is I wanted to ask you if you had to go through this all again if you had to learn all over again knowing what you know now what would you do to accelerate that learning curve? Where would you put your focus? Where did you waste your time, and where did you really find oh. that you got the best um, traction with learning learning the sport? And I think maybe you've answered that already, but maybe you want to just expand on on, on this a little bit
1: yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point to bring up, and it's an honest point because you kind of have to you know, admit where you were wrong. Um, I think yes, yeah, so because like we said, I think rushing into the the better boat. Um, I think also a little bit of a fear of failure coming from you know, the, coming from a bit of rowing angst and, and knowing I was quite good there. And then I kind of got rejected at the last second and then sort of feeling like I needed to prove myself. I, I wanted to be better maybe too soon. Um, and it, I could have just taken more time. I could have spent more time actually learning how to fall out the boat. Like why are people so afraid to fall out their boats? Like they won't look cool if they fall out. Um, but you learn so much by falling out. Like you learn your parameters. So you learn – Okay there was a mill too much to the left, or I, I put my paddle a little bit too far ahead, and yeah, so I think to simplify it is to to maybe stayed in those more stable boats a bit longer and to maybe push the boundaries in those more stable boats um, even even to this day if I, if i 'm really honest i 'm still not exceptionally stable sitting in a k one on a start line um, five strokes into the race i 'm one hundred percent and and you know I, I challenge you to make me fall out but But why, like four or five years down the line, am I not great at starts yet? Because I think as humans we choose to keep doing what we are good at and makes us feel good. And we kind of, if we can, avoid the stuff that doesn't make us feel good. Yeah. Um so I would I would go back to those foundations. I would practice I would get into a life saving ski, a round the can ski, and I would do round the can and I would practice trying to jump side saddle and practice trying to jump from the right side of my boat and the left, like I didn't do any of that. I, I was so desperate to get out in front that I did whatever stupid thing I could to get into my boat and just to avoid that part, which was awkward. Um, and I think those are really important. Um, so so stable boats, um, round the can skis, and, um, you know, practice starts and, and standing up. I get so jealous when I see like guppies and they they trying to stand in their boat and they're trying to do a handstand in their boat. And I never did that. Like I was too busy, you know, trying to, Get fitter when um, it doesn't matter how fit you are. If you're the last person of the blocks, then you you know your fitness was wasted.
0: Yeah. I, I love that because really what you're saying is, 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 is really get familiar with your equipment and make friends with it you know I think I think a lot of us I'm, I'm, I'm similar coming from a swimming background and other sports backgrounds I just wanted to get fitter and that meant faster um, whereas actually just understanding your equipment and making it one with you and, and you know falling out of a boat and being able to get back in a boat instantly is a safety feature I mean how many rescues have happened because guys and girls have tried two, three, four times to get back in a boat they can't and so now suddenly the NSRI is involved so not only is but a learning curve thing. It's a safety thing. Get used to the equipment and don't get scared of don't get scared of getting wet. It's a water sport. So, so with the risk of being boring, haley and, and, and just humor me here, I want to ask you a question, which every movie star and every celebrity and every athlete gets asked, you know, what would you give, what tip would you give to young boys and girls out there who want to get into the sport? But I want to just change it up a little bit. I want, to, I want to say, particularly from a female aspect, and I don't want to talk about young girls in particular. I want to talk about women who are looking for a, for, a, for a sport to get into and they want to get into surf ski. I've had a look at this, and I don't see from my side that it's the most accessible sport to to, to get into. Um, I think especially from a woman's point of view where you've got to wear tight clothing, you're down at the beach, you're on display, you don't want to look like a fool. How, how would you address that question to get more women, yes, young girls as well, juniors, but also more women into the world? of What what do you, you think is missing? What do we need to be doing here?
1: Yeah, we've been discussing this quite a lot lately, actually. Uh, Jackie Boyd and Kim Popel, myself, Janet, Janet Simkins, and, and the, the topic has been what are the barriers? Um, and you you mentioned a few, it's it's maybe it's you know not feeling confident about your body and you know being in spandex on the beach, and that and that's one, but that's I think we can get past that. Um I think it's still it's still quite a male driven sport and it's, it's still quite an intimidating sport just from the aspect of being out of the ocean and taking on the surf and, you know, getting blown out to sea. Um, I think we possibly need to create more kind of free clinics, which is what we've been trying to do in Durbs, and, and on comfortable patches of water. So a place like veggies, you know, on a, on a beautiful flat day is just, is incredible. Um, and, and, Women are keen to come down anywhere anyway, their families are on the beaches and, and the water's not intimidating and we can start with the fun, easy swim and, and you know, teach people things. Um, but maybe also, you know, like dam options and river options and lake options like like La Mercy and Blue Lagoon and things like that where it's easy to access and people feel safe. Like I can jump in, I can fall out, I can swim to the side. Um, I'm not going to get sick from the water quality. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I also... I, sent, I was quite keen to, to try and encourage events where men were not in, incentivized sort of financially, but that the guys were encouraged to, to race a mixed double or to compete in a mixed double or to bring a family member, but also to try and get women to go in the front of the boat because that's the next thing. We get we get women to the event, we might get them into a double, but they'll always default into the double into the back. Um, so then we're not really growing or or learning the skill that much because it's fine. We'll just put the big strong guy who's been doing it since he was 15 in the front um, and we'll just tap along the back. So I don't know if if I am answering your question, but, but I think we're on the same page where we need to just, identify the barriers and drop them and create a safe space. And um, and I think just get more women that are involved talking about it. A junior like Sabina is the perfect example. She is so passionate about the sport. She can't get enough words out every day about her love for it. <laughs> and um, she often says to me, there's, there's lots of girls at, at schools like Ipworth um, and that, that are really good river paddlers, but for some reason they, they can't make the 45 minute journey to the beach to come and paddle surf ski. Um, and, and maybe it's just because, it's not in their face. Like people aren't talking about it enough. Um, And yeah, now you maybe get companies like Sean partners and this new Irish coast race. And and they suddenly pumping money into prize money. People are talking about surf ski again. Hopefully our juniors and our, and our women that are maybe the typical saying evergreen, they're actually all going, Oh, well maybe I'll train a little bit harder this season because there's, there's something to race for. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I, I think we're getting there.
0: I'm glad you say that, but I've got to jump in as the organizer of the Freedom Paddle and include the Freedom Paddle in that little list of events there, but that's the personal dig. But I love what you're saying, and it actually runs straight into my next question as well, which I think you've also answered to some, some, some extent. You're jumping ahead, ahead on me here, which is great. Um, so I wanted to ask you, in, in that frame of mind of, of, of female participation in our sport and also the events, because you don't, you don't have to partake in events and race and be competitive to enjoy surfski paddling. It is a great lifestyle sport. Get out there and enjoy it. Um, but what do you what do you see right now in the current structure that's that's that, that's not being done correctly? Um, but more importantly, I'm also quite keen to highlight what is being done correctly and how we can expand on that. I think in the sport as a whole, but maybe particularly from an advancing side of things, because that's the most easiest one to identify.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we're just not advertising it. Like, are we not? Is it not getting encouraged at a school level? Is it getting encouraged at Clifton College, but not at Samiri's DSG. So I don't know. And it, like you say, it doesn't have to start with juniors. Are um, moms, moms, or I don't know, runners? I don't, I don't know. Is it just? Is it the equipment? Do we not have enough available free equipment? Um, there's a really good system that I I've recently heard about in, in Sydney. They've called themselves the Sydney Harbour Surf Club, I think. And basically, there's a there's a coach there, and he's got, I think, 20 surf skis. And he he pretty much loans or rents those out. So instead of having to buy a surf ski for anywhere from six thousand to twenty thousand rand, you just pay your monthly fee to your, this trainer, and you come down there, and he's got twenty beautiful skis, and you just book your slots, like going to a yoga class and renting a yoga mat. Um, and that's a brilliant concept because the skis are kept in good nick. There's two or three of you effectively sharing a ski, but why do you have to buy a whole new ski? Why, why don't you rather just, you know, rent one? Um, there's no admin of putting your ski on the racks. You don't have to have a car with roof racks. You don't have to have a garage space at home for a ski. It's all down at the clubhouse. Um, and I, I don't know why we don't, we don't do that. It actually makes sense. And it's, it's quite a good business opportunity. Um, and um, I think that would help because then, then immediately you, you mitigate this, I can't afford a boat, I can't afford a life jacket, I can't afford a paddle. Don't worry about it, That's all there. Can you afford the, I don't know, 200 rand a month, I just suck that out my thumb, to come down and you get one or two paddling slots a week or whatever it is, um, and the coach is with you, and we go early in the morning before work, so there we go, That's that barrier removed, it's, it's at a reasonable time, um, and it's coached, so you're not going out on your own and winging it, and um, I, think, I think that would be a brilliant idea. So, so that's a start. And I think someone like Jackie Boyd is, is trying to grow that. So Jax has got some boats available. Um, and she's out there every single Saturday with a couple of her coaches. And they take whoever's keen. And they have a, um, I think it's a five-class school that they run. Um, so it's coming, but maybe it's just not enough. Maybe it's not, you know, there's not enough of them happening during the week. And if you can't make Saturday, then you don't get to make it. And that's your one shot. So, so possibly that's a problem. But that's, that's some good and bad combined there.
0: Yeah, I think there's also a role to play in Serbsky Media. I mean, someone like myself and some of the others as well. And uh, in, in just changing female mindsets, I mean, Haley, you, know you know my stance on this. So I can afford to be slightly controversial. But, um, you know, I think sometimes women have a role to play in this as well, in that stepping forward and being proactive and taking advantage of things that um, are available uh, for them and not going, oh, that's not, that's not for me. Uh, and, and that's a deeper issue as to, as to maybe how society is put together. So we don't have time to, time to dive into that. But um, yeah, I, 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 I like what you're. I like what you're saying. I want to just stay on this topic for a little bit longer before we move on. Um, but I, I want to ask you. Uh, you know, th- one of the arguments that are put together. Uh, but not put together, put forward quite often in in the world of of sports, and but definitely in paddling, we're not we're not innocent of this as well. Is a justification for the disparity between men and women prize giving, uh, the amount of money given, or, or not even money, just just, just the, the the acknowledgement given, the, the amounts of of, of uh, uh, prizes handed handed over are just uh, are not equal. And one of the reasons given for that is the lack of depth in a lady's field. And I know you've got something to say about this, and I'm keen to hear in your words. How you kind of deal with that argument when it's put forward to you?
1: Yeah, it's it's hugely difficult. Um, there's no denying that the, that the numbers are there from the men's side, um, but it's it's like it's like demographics and, and and racism. Like if 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 you weren't allowed to do the sport fifty years ago, um, if you weren't if you weren't encouraged to compete, if you weren't allowed to do it, then how are you expected to have the same numbers in the sport now as, as the men who've been doing it for 60 years, if we've only been doing it for 20 years. Um, that's, that's my simple answer to that. Like, and I've had some of the, the the great doozy legends that are in their seventies now saying to me, Oh yeah. When, you know, when I did my first doozy or for my first 15 doozies, women weren't even allowed to do the doozy, um, or the um umco or whatever. So it's not really fair to, Hold me, let's say me, paddler X, responsible for the lack of numbers, and then to reward Hank, paddler Y, because he's got 200 men in the race. He's not directly responsible for those 200 men entering that day any more than I'm directly responsible for the 22 women that entered that day. Um, yet both of us have committed our lives effectively to trying to get the best result on that day. Um, so, so that's so that's my argument. Like. To credit the men or the top three men for being on the podium for the 200 men that were lined up behind them isn't exactly fair, given the fact that on any good day there's probably only five men that can get on that podium, not 200. Um, and, and the same goes for the women; there might be five women that can compete for three spots, not 22. But you know, so that's so that's my argument there. Like if we haven't been doing the sport for as long as you, we can't expect the same amount of numbers. And that said if we continue to create this massive barrier between you know, males and females, then we are kind of just fulfilling the same prophecy, which is you're never going to get the credit. So, so don't bother coming back. You're wasting your time, which, which is a race organizers worst nightmares for women not to come back to their race. Um, and our worst nightmare, because then we, you know, again, are lacking numbers. So, if we just draw a line in the sand and move forward together, surely that gives everyone the best chance of the, of the, you know, of the sports growing. It means fathers and brothers and husbands will encourage their daughters and wives and sisters to paddle. Um, but not if it's seen in the other way, not if it's just seen as you're never actually going to, going to be seen as equal. So don't bother find another sport or, you know, go back to producing babies. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, for me, from, from, from my side of it, I say the depth argument falls apart. The moment you've got, I'm just choosing a number here, five top women involved. That means there's only three podium spots. So all of those top five mm. ladies are going to race as hard as they can. They all want the top podium spots. And like you said, there might be 200 men, but there's only five that maybe have got any chance of getting onto that podium. So in terms of the prize money and rewarding the accolades and the amount of time and training and dedication, it's equal across both sides. And uh, I think if you talk to 99.9%, I, I hope I'm right on that of male paddlers they'd love to see uh, you know, the female paddlers being treated 100% equally. And I think in our sport, maybe I'm speaking from a point of ignorance here, but I think in our sport of paddling, we're seeing that more and more now. There are There, there is some, some sort of disparity left, but I did do some research a while back and most of the major races, and please correct me, seem to be taking an equal stance now between between men and women.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I actually, yeah, well, um, oh, funny story. I had someone kind of, take a jab at me the other day because they'd, they'd seen me being quite public about um, my issues on inequality with, you know, with prize, um, you know, prize allocations. And then they were like, Oh, well, that's funny because we saw you at such and such race. And um you know, you, you didn't, you didn't take a stab at that race organizer about the unequal prize money. And I was like, okay, point taken. Um, but okay. Also it's not my job to chase down every single organizer. But secondly, most organizers have come on board like and, and that's what kind of makes the, the topic you sort of feel bad bringing it up because I, in some ways not to make excuses but I just think in some ways race organizers just had a race template that they've had for 10 years and when it came to allocating prize money they stuck to that same template that that, that they would always had and they just didn't adjust it um and that's why you do eventually have to stand up for yourselves and, and make a point of it and just bring it up and it it can be nasty and it can be over social media and no one wants that, or it can be a polite phone call, a polite email. Yes. So, and so, are you aware of this? Do you realize that we are in 2018 <laughs> and can we revisit this? Um, and, and most of the time they have turned around and gone, yes, they might've made an excuse, but I think they generally go back, do some research exactly like you say, talk to their sponsors and, and have come back and gone. You're absolutely right. We need to make a change. And this will in turn attract more women to our race, which is just which is what they want. Because why would you go, right now, why would you go to a race that doesn't have equal rights mm, mm. when there are now so many races available that do? Mm. Um, and and that's, that's a fantastic place to be in with surf ski.
0: Yeah, I mean, we mentioned Jackie Boyd a couple of times in the Paddling Academy. If anyone is looking at getting into surf ski paddling, uh, that's a fantastic place to start. But uh, and the reason I mentioned Jackie again is we have, I think with the exception of Jackie, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, almost zero uh, event organizers that are female. Uh, Jackie's putting a great series together with the Geriatskis as the main sponsor running out of DUC and uh, I think it's been taken on really well um, because I think sometimes men, I don't want to give men an excuse here, but I think sometimes we're also a victim of this programming where we just don't think beyond the end of our noses and just kind of inherit what what went before, but it's no longer good enough. Mm. We've got to change. But I want to put this topic behind us. It's something we can talk about for ages and we're both quite passionate about it, but I think uh, a lot of folks are kind of keen to hear about Hayley and uh, and what the world of paddling means to you so i've got a question here that's come from one of the uh, one of the guys that uh, i'm involved with it's actually charting a, a similar path to you and that they're relatively new to the sport and are quite taken by it and kind of looking to the future and they particularly wanted to ask me what did it take for you to bridge the gap from from racing locally to racing overseas because the local local athlete looks at their huge financial commitment organizing boats travel visas um, there's virtually no prize money in the in the grand scheme of things. This is not golf for Grand Prix mm-hmm. or motor car racing. What does it take to race overseas? How does someone make that transition to achieving that and and and, and making it making it a reality?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and it, it is a massive barrier. Um, even one of the guys I paddle with a couple of months ago said, "Oh, I'd love to go, but I can't afford it." And I thought, no, that's that's too short sighted. Um, the first two years of, of racing internationally, so going to Oklahoma World Champs with Jenna, um, and then going to Hungary World Champs flatwater with Donna, and then Tahiti Life's, um, World Surf Champs, uh, fundraised. Um, you, I fundraised. You, I, I, you know, I called around and asked people to donate prizes if you know if they had companies or vouchers or products, and um, put together some you know some raffle sheets. It's as simple as that. You learn it when you're in primary school. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a bit of humble pie, you know, you've got to go around, but you've got to, yeah. You, know, you just got to create awareness, like, and, and people are so keen to support. There's amazing, um, you know, online things now called like GoFundMe or GoFundMyTour. And there's all those things. And, and that's what I did. So for the first two years, I worked out what I was, it was going to cost me to go on tour. It's going to cost 40 grand. All right, I'm selling tickets. a two hundred around a ticket. Boom, off you go. And, and you I will forever be grateful for how generous the paddling community are. Um, people fell over themselves to buy tickets and um, and they did it, you know, without even an explanation or wanting a thank you. Do you know what I mean? They were just only so keen to see a paddler that, that they knew and that, you know, that they'd seen training um, only so keen to try and help send them to, a, to an overseas race. So I think I think that's the one thing. Um, so first up was to actually just try and do some fundraising myself and try and get myself to the events. And the second thing is I think once you start showing a certain amount of interest, um, and yeah, I guess it's quite chicken and egg when you when you start getting a few kind of results or at least being consistent, sponsors come along, um, and and you will all know from my posts and and. And I'm I'm very like open about my sponsors, but sponsors like Carbonology and Eurosteel, and um, they came on quite quickly and in, in in various ways, just to help with the odd race entry or here's a paddle or hey we've got a boat that so and so's not using anymore, why don't you take it? Um, Lee Furby was amazing to me. He gave me a surf ski that was full carbon just because he felt like it. Like you know, and you'd just be surprised how generous the paddling community is. So. So don't let it, uh, you know, the cost of a race um, or an overseas tour get in the way. Try and fundraise it for it first. And secondly, you'd be amazed how how it snowballs. And, and before you know it, people will be offering to help. Alan Hold, another one, you know, people who just were so keen to see the sport grow and see a youngster make it, and, and they were keen to help. And it's been amazing. And it's led me to where I am now, where, yeah, I do have some great sponsors on board. Um, but you're right, it's, it's, not a, it's not a cheap sport to participate in as, as South Africans.
0: I'm glad you mentioned a couple of people by name there. Guys, if you're listening, you, know, you didn't do it for recognition, but but thanks so much for your support. And uh, also, just the Geriatskys in particular, I've seen them put their hand up many times to help a whole host of paddlers. So those guys who aren't based in Durban, who from overseas, maybe you've heard of Geriatskys, maybe you haven't, so that's a bit of an insider thing here. But for a brief moment, I just want to say, uh, I haven't benefited personally other than being welcomed into their community. Um, but I've seen those guys step up and, and help, uh, and help paddlers get started and get to events. So a big thank you for, on, on behalf of other paddlers from me to, to, to you guys out
1: there, you know who you
0: are. Uh, so well, they, on...
1: they were Robin. I'm glad you brought them up. Sorry, but they were yeah. unbelievable. They, they invited me to paddle with them one morning on their Thursday morning around the Harbor paddle. It's a, it's the greatest session. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> afterwards we all went for breakfast and I was quite shy and and Ian Murray said give me your raffle sheet and I was like yeah like be subtle and he literally pulled the raffle sheet out and he just pointed to each of them and he was like you boom cash you cash you and 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 that's Ian because he's he's great like that but the guys loved it and they were so supportive and yeah and and that actually started friendships and now most of them all come to me for, you know, for some core training and it's, it's just been incredible that I feel like I've got 12 dads, but, <laughs> but it is, they're, they're an incredible bunch. So so I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah.
0: Great bunch of guys. Great, 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 great bunch of guys. I've done some good, some, a lot of paddling, a lot of hours with them. Yeah. Uh, um, logistic wise, um, surf skis are six meters long. So are you organizing your own boat to be shipped from venue to venue? Cause we always see you in a carbonology pulse. I think maybe I've seen you in one or two, three other things in the early days how does how does that work how do you how do you get the boat that you want you need at a venue
1: yeah so that's um that's kind of like renting a car in a country um pretty much all boat manufacturers have got a, a fleet or fleets of boats that are um based in certain countries based in certain continents um and if you know where you're going to race then you phone ahead and you get hold of the agent um and you book your surf ski. you you know you book and pay for it or if you are um, lucky enough to be sponsored, then then generally the sponsor will will have a, a boat that they can provide for you at certain races. Um, it just depends on the location of the race and obviously um, how many of that that boat is available. The fact that I got a, a pulse at Molokai was just the universe playing on our side. Um, the just in that example, like that boat that I raced, I had raced last year at the Gorge Downwind, which is an event in in Portland in in America, um, and. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I honestly think it might be the only pulse in America and um, to to have managed, it had been booked for the gorge this year, but luckily they managed to wangle a deal to send it to Hawaii for me first. Um, so I was very lucky, but it just was meant to be that I'd be in a pulse, but but that's how it works. So it's quite simple. It's not like marathons where you have to you know send your boat over on a ship two months in advance. Uh, we are quite lucky with surf skis that they're quite established. They're pretty much all over the world and um, you can, you can book one in advance and, and have it at your event, which is awesome.
0: So to anyone's listening, I'm going to be selling raffle tickets on my website because I want to go to the Perth doctor at the end of the year. So uh, I'll figure that out. <laughs> too, so I don't know about how are we going to pull that one off? Yeah. And uh, if, if the Perth doctor's listening, I want, I want a fan elite S. So uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, fantastic. Classic. <laughs> so Hayley, uh, I think certainly a lot of the Durban people know that you're a biokineticist. Uh, for those that aren't South African, a biokineticist is kind of a spin-off discipline from a physiotherapy. There's physiotherapists in America called physical trainers. But essentially, you're someone who's got a, a medical training in, in in exercise and sports science. So, and, and, and that's how you make your living to this day. Am I right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I work at a, a practice called Kings Park Sports Medicine Center i 'm um, in a very unique and 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 very lucky lucky position in terms of of my job um i I practice biokinetics under um my colleague 's name which is Lynn mackey biokineticist and um and we have a, a really great relationship where we've we 've built up a sort of um, a patient uh, sort of database where we see walk-ins and we see day-to-day patients and in orthopedic injuries and, and, and things like that, you know, fixing shoulders and rotator cuff injuries and lower back problems, et cetera. Um, but we also have quite a big athlete sort of database that we built up from, from treating athletes for rehab who've then kind of stayed on for somewhat of uh, strength and conditioning um, as well. And, um, and what it gives me is by working with Lynn and, and working with that practice is just the freedom to, to work when I can work and to, to travel for, for training and for racing um, when I need to, which is, which is something pretty special and I am, I am hugely grateful for and it's, it's allowed me to come as far as I have because if I'd had a, a standard eight to five job, I either would have been fired from paddling or fired from my job. So <laughs> I might not have been here by now.
0: So it's absolutely bizarre coincidence. My my I'm also a biokineticist by training, no longer practicing. And they say the plumbers, it's the plumber's house that's got the leaking taps. And me as a biokinetist, <laughs> no better. I can't touch my toes. I do everything wrong. I'm hoping you're not like me. And I want to ask you with that sports science background, with that scientific approach, plus the, you know, the 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 face training that you're doing with athletes. What's your approach to training? Walk us through your, your weekly routine, your daily routine, and maybe some of your periodization as you go through the year because let's be honest, there's, there's year-round racing now. How do you manage this? How do you, how do you put, put this whole thing together in a way that the rest of us can listen and kind of start adapting some of these principles for ourselves?
1: Sure. It's, um, it's, a, it's a hard question to sum up um, and, and by all means, if people really wanted to know more, then, then maybe rather email me and we can really get to the nitty-gritty. But it's also not solely my responsibility and and I've come from, I've obviously come from an undergraduate and a postgraduate in sort of the sports science. Um, I've also spent six full on years training on an Olympic program, which was strictly periodized. We were pretty much monitored Monday to Sunday, what we ate, what we drank. We did psychology, psychological testing once a week. Um, that was incredibly, um, Incredibly clinical and scientific. Um, so a lot of what I studied, I then got to experience firsthand as the athlete, where I didn't have to think about it. Um, I just got to be the athlete that rocked up at six o'clock in the morning and trained. And there was a very smart physiologist and a couple of really good coaches and a bio and a physio. And you know what I mean? So I got to, I got to learn it and then I got to experience it. And then when I left rowing, I got to take it all away as, as a learned athlete who um, who got to wear both hats. Um, Since then, I've worked with a few different coaches. um, And, and I think that's now why Linton and I have worked so well together as an athlete coach relationship is that we're on the same page and we have the same beliefs. So it's taken, what am I now? 34. It's taken 14 years for me to get here, but I now know what I believe in and what I think works. And, and part of that has been through Linton over the last two and a half years. Um, And that's, that's quite a regulated um, heart rate based training system um, where we train to heart rates and we train to certain speeds, which we don't base on, you know, an equation out of a textbook. We, we base on regular testing. Um, so we have set time trials we do. We have set testing that we do. On a regular basis so that we can constantly update and make changes to our training program according to what we're seeing in the numbers. Um, and that for me is really important. I, I don't believe everything has to be totally black and white and quantitative, but I do think it's an important part of knowing if what you're doing is moving in the right direction. Um, there's always a subjective side. There's always a perceived exertion versus what the heart rate monitor is actually telling you. But, but we've, we're in touch with that. We know our bodies well. We know each, our training program well. Linton and I know each other well. And um, we read up a lot. So there's a, for anybody listening, like there's a really good, um, I call it a blog or um, person you could follow. And that's for Maffetone, Um and that's the math training and the math diet. And, and that's what we base a lot of our training on. Um, and, and I'm getting to the stage now where like, I can't credit Linton enough because he, he got me thinking about it again. He got me believing it again and, and we've proven it in the results together. And even something like the Molokka, like, we were training for king of the bay, which is a 26 kilometer race three weeks before Malika, I get called and asked if I'm in good enough condition to come and do it. And look what we did. So we're doing something right because the the conditioning that we are basing our training on has been able to perform over two hours and perform over four hours. Um, So I really like, I can't thank him and that system enough because it's, it's got us pretty far. And with that, we have, Gym at least twice a week, which is strength training to keep us injury-free, to keep us with good posture in the boat, to you know, to work the core muscles, um, to keep us flexible, and um, and running. We run a lot as well. We run we run at least three times a week. Um, it's not high mileage, but it's good speed, good tempo running to keep to keep the cardio system going, to challenge our heart rate into a different zone. It also helps women. It helps me with weight loss, with keeping my weight down. Um, so yeah, it's, and, and that comes with a bit of physio and and things like that on the side and, and I've had my years of, um, sports psychology and all that as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's 14 years of work that's finally come together in the last two years. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a like a little pill you swallow one morning and and your training program is perfect for the next 10 years.
0: Yeah. There's no such thing as an overnight success. It may look like from the outside, but uh, yeah, 14 years of hard yeah. work going into that. So if I'm doing my math correctly, you've got two days of gym, uh, three days of running, I guess you're paddling most days. So that means, you know, you're doing out of, out of seven days, you're doing at least five of those days, two sessions a day. Is that right?
1: Yeah. We've, we've probably got about 12 sessions a week on the program. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm the first to admit it's, it's the work life balance. If, if I'm if I'm under the whip at work, I might have to miss a run or substitute a run that was supposed to be on Tuesday for you know a Sunday or whatever. Um, but yes, we paddle we paddle every day. Um, sometimes we'll take a maybe a Friday off, so we paddle once a day every day. Um, and then yeah, and then we normally double up with a gym um, or a run on on that day as well. And then the weekends are normally nice long paddles because obviously everyone's got more time on their hands. And uh, we double up the other days early morning and, and late afternoon yeah that's that's our schedule
0: so you're known as a surfski paddler obviously a surfski world champ at the moment we've definitely seen you doing some marathons and we're going to talk about that in, in in a short while but how much flat water training are you doing a technique training on the flat waters versus how much time you're spending in a surf ski
1: we're on the water on flat water once a week um that's pretty much it standard uh, once a week um, in our K1s on the river and then every other day is in the surf. So so that takes me back again to my point earlier where I said, um, if you want to get good at something, you, you've got to do it often. And, and, that's, and that's where the, my change in, in training squads really happened was I, I was in a squad that was predominantly on the river training for marathons and, and I realized after Tahiti that I wanted to be a surf ski paddler. That was the most beautiful, wild, difficult sport I'd ever done. Um, and I had to make a choice to stay with a group that focused on marathons or to move to a group that was in the ocean, which was where I needed to get skillful. Um, so yeah, so pretty much six, six sessions a week, five or six sessions a week in the ocean and one in the river, obviously nearer to flatwater marathon time. Like now, we'll be going to SM marathon champs. We'll be in the river a little bit more often. Um, but I would say 80% of my program is, is in 80% of the year I'm in the ocean, um, five days a week. And um sorry, was that it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we're sitting so so with with, with Serfski, obviously we, we, we you know we grind it up, we do the interval sessions, do the long paddles, we we work hard. Um but there's so much to Serfsky, the downwind skill, you just got look at look at someone like Oscar who in his fifties is still dominating. So you know it's not all about um strength and pure fitness, although the way Oscar's looking at the moment, yes. uh, maybe that weakens my argument a bit. So my question to you is how much time do you spend on technique and i don't want to i don't want to say technique in terms of, of your paddle stroke i want to say technique in terms of learning to ride
1: waves and how much time do you actually spend in the surf zone yes sorry good question and i knew you'd ask me that sorry um <laughs> i i still don't think i spend enough time doing downwinds um and and technique as such um and it's something that that linton and i made a distinct effort to change probably a year ago now it 10 months ago, certainly leading up to the Hong Kong dragon row and the world champs is that we knew there was a chance the wind would blow and we would have a good 12, 15 K section of downwind. And, and up until then, I I'd, I'd proven myself as a a fit person and a good flatwater paddler, but can she do it in the wind? Um, So, yeah, so we, we, we've gotten to the stage now where um, I feel more comfortable saying, Hey, the wind's blowing. I'm going to go do a downwind um, instead of possibly um, you know, some two-minute intervals in in the flat section near DUC or in the harbor. Um, and I think that's important. And, and, again, it comes down to that same idea. Like, if you're trying to get good at a skill, if you want to be a, a surf ski paddler who can do well in downwind races, then maybe substitute one of the flat water interval sessions for some downwind. Um, because I learned that the hard way. Like, I, I, would be, I would be good on flats, and then I would be fourth or fifth as soon as the wind blew. Um, and it was incredibly frustrating. And, and Oscar's the perfect example. Like he's been doing it for 40 years. He he can see runs that, that we don't even think are going in the right direction. He's found them and he's increasing his boat speed. Um, and, and downwind paddling is a craft. It's, it's an art. You, you've got to spend time doing it to get better at it. Um, I think you can discuss it as much as you want. But like it's not, it's not like just learning an equation A plus B. Like you've got to feel it. You've got to see it in front of you. Um, so so for me, it's been more, more recently, it's been about getting out in the wind. Um, and that's been the only way to learn and, and learning from people like paddling, paddling close to my coach or paddling like with someone like Oscar, where they can actually point out what you're doing wrong and point out what you're doing right and, and learning that way. Um, so that's hugely important. So, so Robin, you know, we don't get to do it that often. If the wind's not blowing, the wind's not blowing. Um, but when it blows, we try and get out there. Someone like Sharon Armstrong, team up with her. She is at every downwind whenever the wind is puffing. Um, and there's people out there that know a lot that you can that you can piggyback along with and, and really pick up some good tips. Yeah, I, I guess
0: South Africa is a little bit unique, even even Durban perhaps and, and, and the Eastern Cape uh, in, in that a lot of the races go through the surf zone. I think Australia is similar to that. But I think a lot of other places in the world and, and Cape Town as well as I'm learning having moved down here is we don't launch through surf very often. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of people kind of realize, think that the surf's a bit of a lottery and uh, you're lucky or you're not lucky. But it's amazing how how lucky of the world the the, the Lifesavers are, the, the Nisman brothers, the, the the Bowmans, the McGregors. They always seem to get to backline before anyone else. So I think, uh, I think and, and also get through the surf, coming back onto the beach without getting spun out and, uh, and broaching and being able to get first onto, onto the beach and taking titles from not being in third place uh, at, at, at the, at the backline. So I think spending time in, in the surf is in the surf zone is absolutely vital. Maybe not on your fancy carbon ski, but get hold of a, a surf lifesaving ski and you know, get out there. And I think it's what we were talking about early earlier, get familiar with your craft, don't be scared of it and learn how it works.
1: Yeah, that's also something I did wrong was I was, I think I was actually so like embarrassed to admit that I wasn't great at starting or jumping in my boat that I would try and get that pot over with as quick as possible. So So once again, knowing I wasn't great at getting out, and then avoiding it like the plague instead of going, okay, well, I'm not going to do the one hour steady paddle today because I'm actually already quite fit. I'm rather going to spend an hour doing in and out, going through the surf zone. Um, and it's, it's actually a lot of fun and you learn a lot. And then, and then it changes your whole approach to a race when you arrive and you, you're not afraid because you know you can get out. Yeah. Um, and even Anton, um, even Fouche said to me the other day, he was like, there are tricks to get out through the surf. Like it's not like um, take five minutes to speak to someone who knows what they're doing, spend the morning with them and you'll learn them. Um, so again, I think people mustn't be afraid to <clears throat> to get smashed in the surf or to take a risk or to ask um, and to learn. And I, I know I can do it. I could spend, definitely spend more days just practicing that. You just got to watch someone like Michelle Byrne or Jean Prater, those guys from the South coast. They are unbelievable. Um, and and that's from experience. That's from doing it since they were younger. So, so If we've got to catch up, that's fine, but but dedicate the time to learn that.
0: Mm, for sure. Yeah, there's a massive skill aspect to uh, that, that goes way beyond just, the, just the, uh, the fitness and the ability to hang in there. But you, you've obviously got quite a high training load, as you mentioned, up to 12 sessions a week. So nutrition's going to have a massive part to play in that. So just talk to us about your, your day-to-day nutrition to support this training load. And then I'm also quite interested to know how you manage your race day nutrition uh, in terms of you know before the race and then during the races as well. But let, let's just start off with how you manage your training load and make sure you've got enough uh, fuel in the tank to, to kind of cash in on the training that you. Doing
1: well, nutrition's been a really interesting journey. Um I've I've jumped from the the typical you know early days, high carb, that's the way athletes should be, you know, sugar carbs, go for it. Um and then I would then I jumped all the way over to banting, and then a little bit of paleo, and then back to sugar. Um, and it's, it's been quite tough, even for me, because I, I, I do the sugar route and I think, no, this is good. Um, my body fat's come down, I'm energized while I'm training, this must be me. And then I realize, no, that's rubbish. And then I go back to the fat. So to be honest, I've, I've gone up and down and I've used great supplements and products along the, the way, but I've, I've always come back to where I'm at now and where I've at, probably been quite strictly for the last well, again, probably ten months. Um and that's and that's the high fat, low carb uh lifestyle. Um and that's all I call it. It's not a diet, it's it's not paleo, it's not bouncing, it's just high fat and lower carb. Um and again it's it's been from, from conversations and long paddles with, with Linton and, and us doing research sort of together and um and learning with you know through our through our kind of uh what's the word? Um dappling in different in different ideas. But so my I mean, do you want me to talk you through what, I, what I'm eating, how I get through? Because um, that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell. Like I basically train on on nothing or water um, for up to two-hour sessions. Um, in the morning, I have a high-fat coffee, which is cream in a really good sort of beans espresso coffee. Um, I might have some, a really good pea protein from a natural, from a good sauce from a nice health shop, um, mixed with a bit of cream or a smoothie, and ever. Um, and, and it's a pretty simple diet, really good, clean proteins. I'm lucky that I'm married to a fisherman, so we eat a lot of really good fish, um, lots of green leafy vegetables, sweet potatoes. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a fantastic way to eat. We just kind of avoid the obvious dangers, which are the processed foods and the sugars and, um, um, yeah, the, the, the breads and starches. And it's a really difficult thing to get your mind over because sometimes when you're hungry or when you're around athletes, you want to have pasta. And that seems to be what athletes have spent their whole lives eating. But I think once you've made the change and you felt the difference in your, um, in your body, in your energy levels, in your, in your stomach, you know, you get less of the bloating, you get less of the GI sort of, um, like your gastro distresses, um, and it's easier to say no to, to the sugary temptations um, and, and to the high carb temptations. And, and certainly when it, for me, I might let my hair down and, and you know, let in a few, a few sneaky sort of treats and things um, when there's not a race looming. But when there's a race within, within six weeks and within five weeks, four weeks, three weeks, my whole mindset changes um, and, um, and I feel good on the water. I feel good in training and I feel good in racing. So it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy again. Like I believe that works for me, but I can't say it's going to work for everybody, but it's, it's certainly been working for me lately. And it's been difficult to come to this. And, and I find actually Robin, answer to your question there. The hardest part is on race day because I find it quite easy to go high fat, low carb every day of the week training, whatever, but funny, when it comes to racing, you want your seatbelt and you want that little sugary little goo gel like mm-hmm. strapped to your boat that makes you feel better about your life, especially in the last 10Ks when you're hurting. Um, and, and like I say, I've, I've had great products that I've used and, and I've enjoyed those and I've, I've credited them for my performances. But I, I always had this like little beetle in the back of my head that was like, no, no, I'm, I'm sure you don't need that. Um, so I've recently tried some new products, um, and I've been hugely happy with them. It's early days and, um, yeah, I guess we'll find out, but, uh, but I performed well in Molokai on, on next to nothing. You know, I think I drank about 300 mls, and, uh, that's it. I didn't ingest one bit of food or gel or goo or anything. Um, yeah, so you can ask me questions on that if you want, but that's where I'm at now
0: yeah it's interesting oscar tells a different story in, in 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 true oscar fashion and uh you know racing three four hours and you know drinking four five hundred bills of water and nothing else and, and oscar's results are are there for, for for everybody to see um so maybe let's just let's us i don't we, we're starting to run short on time here so i want to push through but i do want to just let's let's just take molokai for an example and maybe just very quickly maybe in a, in a minute um can you run us through kind of when you wake up on the morning of molokai uh, your breakfast, and then actually how, how did you manage, what did you, if you ate anything uh, or drank anything, what was it that you did during during that, what was it, I think three hours, three hours 20, three hours 30, I think whatever that
1: your uh, your paddle was there. 352. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, Monika is tricky and it's a good example because we had to get up at like 4 a.m. and um, you're staying in a hotel, so you don't have the convenience of coffee or boiling the kettle or et cetera. Um, I actually headed straight down to Starbucks, which, thank goodness, woke up or opened up at 4 a.m. I bought a black Americano, which is a nice uh, stiff black coffee. And I'd bought some, the closest thing I could find to heavy cream from the shop the day before. And I dolloped a whole lot of that in. So that was my high-fat coffee first thing in the morning. Um, I think the next thing I stomached was a banana. Um, and possibly some, some nuts, uh, like cashews and mixed nuts and things like that. Um, luckily at Starbucks, I bought these, this cool, um, breakfast pack they do, which is two boiled eggs, a big piece of white cheese, um, what else? And a little bit of fruit in there. I was so stoked to find it. And it came with a little sachet of peanut butter awesome. <laughs> um, I generally travel, travel with peanut butter as well. I travel with uh, like a sugar-free, salt-free peanut butter. So that was me. I had um, a little bit of fruits, some nuts, lots of high-fat foods, cheese, um, coffee. And that was up until about two hours before, two hours or an hour and a half before. Um, then I pretty much stopped eating other than the odd snack if I really feel like I'm hungry and it's not just nerves. Um, lots of water, a second black coffee. And um, that was it. Yeah. Um, there's a, a recent a product that I've recently started dappling with called uh, Keto Nutrition, which you guys actually introduced to me at the Freedom Paddle, um, which was, blew my mind when I saw it because, like I say, I'd always still defaulted to a sugary drink on race, drink, on race day despite my build up, And um, I'm hoping that keto is, is, is the option for me moving forward now. But they've got a product called Exo, and I, I drank that. Um, and I put the the keto their sort of juice, for lack of a better word, um, supplement into my water bottle. I made about 700 mils. My husband even looked at me weirdly, and he was like, "Are you serious? Is that all you're taking?" And I was like, "I bet you I won't even drink this." And um, I stuck two nut gels under my, you know, into my boat. and that's basically a, like a peanut butter um, gel instead of a sugar gel. It's just it's just a um, like a nut butter thinking I would use those. And, and I didn't, Robin. I drank about 200 mils, maybe 250 mils. I didn't touch the nut gels. And um, with eight Ks to go in that race, so after 45 Ks, I did my fastest split, um, which I think was about a 352 then. And my heart rate was still around about 163, 164. So I was actually still in, in great condition with, with eight Ks to go after three four hours of racing four hours and 15 minutes of racing yeah so so i'm starting to believe that uh less is more when it comes to nutrition and and that high fat is the way forward um but i've got the utmost respect for other products because they've they've gotten me this far but I, i think i'm changing
0: Sure. That's quite amazing. Proof in the pudding there. Um, I've, 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 I think I've mentioned this before, for, um, if anyone's heard me on this topic, but uh, someone once uh, said to me, in fact, I think it was R- Richard Lowe, one of, the, one of the Durban stalwarts of paddling, uh, being, on, being on a high-fat, low-carb is like um, you know, you're, you're a fuel tanker. And instead of just relying on the small tank that's driving the engine of your fuel tank, you've actually thrown a hose into the massive tanker behind you, with all that fuel sitting. And that's what the fat stores are in our human mm. body. It uh, traditionally exactly. rely on the carbs, which is the small little fuel tank uh, sitting under the engine that runs out quite quickly. So, so yeah, that's, I mean, just just uh, looking at your progress and uh, and then also seeing what uh, the turnaround Oscars, well, not in terms of performance, because Oscars always had a phenomenal performance. But uh, if anyone's seen yeah. Oscar lately, he's looking more and more like Bruce Fordyce of back in the day, which is uh, quite remarkable. Yeah, no, he's looking uh, lean and mean. Yeah, yeah he really absolutely. is. Um, so we've, we've uh, kind of got used to some of the major events, uh, the, the Mauritius Race, uh, Perth, uh, um, uh, the Perth Doctor and, and uh, the Gorge Race and so forth. We see the likes of, of Sean Rice. We see uh, uh, Oscar Chulipsky, uh, Jasper Mocker nowadays, uh, David's done a lot as well, where they're giving clinics and, they, and they're sharing their skill and their love and their passion for, uh, for paddling. Uh, of late, I think I've seen it two or three times now where social media showing up uh you up to certain tricks uh kind of along the same line, but what i 've seen there 's been no surf ski in sight. you seem to be doing something a little different at these at these clinics of yours what's what's going on there
1: yeah well, so my my offering has has been a lot more land based um i think you know, when, when you've got guys like, like Oscar, like David, um, you know, Sean offering, offering downwind clinic clinics, it's, it's a wealth of knowledge and it, and they've been in the industry a whole lot longer. And, and I, I don't think I could, I didn't want to compete for their space, um, in that regard. Um, I wanted, I wanted to be a woman offering clinics because I wanted females to feel like they had a female to go to if they were intimidated by the men. I, I was always intimidated by, by these amazing guys that we paddle with. So I could relate to that. But I also wanted to offer what what I think I'm really experienced in, which is the mobility, the, the the flexibility, the the core training, um, trying to prevent injuries, trying to maybe help post injuries. Um, and that's not to say that I'm an expert in the field, but certainly that's where I've spent a lot of my working life, and and that's what I've studied, and that is what I do. Um, so I often post that that little that little video of me with all my my mobility bands, stretching and, and things before before races. And that is honestly what I do. I do that stuff three three to five times a week and it, it keeps me loose. It keeps my muscles activated. Um, it helps me it helps me burn off tension and anxiety. And I think those things are important, especially not so much for the youngsters because they're flexible and they recover in five seconds. But for those of us that are getting older, you know, for for the guys in their forties and fifties who played top level rugby when they were youngsters and their knees are sore and their hips are sore. And, um, you talk about trying to remount, trying to jump back in your surf ski. Well, if you don't have any flexibility in your hips, how on earth are you going to get back in your surf ski, um, in six foot swell, you know, on a, on a South East off Durban's coast. Um, so, so what I saw was a gap in the market where, where people needed to be educated on how do you have longevity in the sport, how to be more comfortable, how to stick around for longer and, and how to maybe, you know, get stronger and faster by just doing something productive off the water because we don't always have time to be on the water. Um, and if my 90-minute if my two-hour workshop can, can help guys with a few extra stretches and a few core exercises that are going to better equip them to then be a better downwind paddler when they get to Oscar's clinic, then, then that's awesome. You know, then we are fulfilling a purpose. And, and I'm passionate about it and I love it and I believe in it. So I'm keen to talk about it.
0: So we want to know more about this. Is it an online thing? Do we have to rock? Do we have to sign up to a clinic that's that's geographical based? What's how do, how do we get involved?
1: Yeah. So at the moment, I'm running them when I can. So, for example, I'm going to St. Francis next week for or this week for um, SA marathon champs and I'm running clinics in St. Francis and PE. And generally what I do is I just advertise them on Facebook. Um, so people will see the posts come up and my plan for the overseas races this year is to do clinics at all those races, because slowly I'm getting feedback from people saying I loved it. And, and, you know, we want to see more of it. Um, but by all means, anybody who who listens and wants to know, it's as simple as finding me on Facebook and dropping me a message, a private message on Facebook or sending me an email. And, um, I can, Organize to do a clinic if you suggest you want one in your area and I also do online coaching. So I've got a few clients all over the world that contact me um, and some are here in South Africa and we just, I just share programs with them via um, online means and, and we communicate that way just to, just to help them either with the strength and conditioning side, so the actual physical gym side, um, or with um, the, the posture and mobility and, and flexibility.
0: Hopefully, uh, if if, if Haley will allow me, I'm hoping that uh, we can do a bit of a collaboration with Haley and her skills and saserski.com to bring some of her expertise to you guys via uh, an online fashion. Yeah, for so sure. so Watch the space. I think we'll we'll figure something out when once we find some time. Uh, yeah, that'll be awesome. Uh, yeah, because I'm one of those people, as I say, I'm also a biokineticist that I can't touch my toes. My posture is terrible. So I'm a, I'm a case <laughs> in point. I've got, to, I've got to get this sorted out.
1: I wanted to say one thing. Um, one thing I take my hat off to with Oscar is... Um, you know, Oscar's not afraid to, to teach everything he knows, which is, which is quite funny to find because we're all competitive. Um, and that's the one thing that I, I really saw f- with him in Hawaii is like he's, he's keen to share his knowledge. He's not holding his cards close, like protecting his secrets that he'll always be, you know, the best or, you know. Ha- and and I'm, I'm trying to learn from him. And I think that's part of why I want to do these clinics more and more is like, like let's show what we're doing. Like, let's, let's learn from each other, should I say. Um, and then hopefully we all get, get better together. So so yeah, so that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from there.
0: Oh, that's fantastic because I think the real magic with the pros, the guys that stand up beyond uh, head and shoulders than everyone else is, is not about what they know it's about how they apply it so I think their secret's always safe uh, no matter what they, what they share but, yeah. uh, Os- 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 Oscar's fantastic with that so I think we can well we can learn a lot from Oscar but also just in a general approach that it's, it's, it's very cool how, how he wears his heart on his sleeve and shares everything but uh, I'm sensitive yeah. with time and uh, not everyone's got yeah. uh, two hours to listen to to paddling so I want to I charge on I've got a couple more things I want to run through quickly and let's just dive into some kit I want to talk to you about paddles uh, what pedal paddle you're using at the moment and why Why are you using whatever paddle is that you're you're, that you're using? Very quickly, what was your journey, and why the paddle you're using right now?
1: Yeah, so I've had quite a journey with paddles. I started, um, yeah, I suppose I started with with carbonology really. Um, That was the first paddles that I really loved and and spent a significant amount of time with. Um, I've always, even Han will tell you, I've always preferred the the bigger spoon, (laughs) the the bigger the bigger load paddle. Um, I don't know if that just comes from rowing I don't know if that comes from maybe not having the greatest technique to start with or something so I prefer to feel the load or a good catch um, I'm not sure I'm sure we could come up with a million reasons but it's just always been my my style and um, I guess about a year ago there was a, an option to move across to Gara um, from from Lee Ferby and, and I, I discussed it with Hein and I discussed it at length with, with Ferbs and um, it was awesome to to support the Gara brand that had just just come into South Africa, or well, had really sort of relaunched themselves in South Africa. Um, and Ferbs and I had always had a good relationship. And, and yeah, with Heinz Blessing, I moved across to Gara. And uh, the first paddle of theirs that I, that I got involved with was Freya. And that's, that's very similar to a Bracha Foreman. So again, there's your typical sort of sprinters, uh, Hungarian kind of marathon paddler, uh, paddle of choice. And and Michelle and I raced the Freyas for World Marathon Champs last year, um, and we loved them. And I think like anything, if you know, if it's a big spoon and you're worried about heavy load, then you you know you can shorten the the shaft length, you can shorten the length of the paddle. and that's always been my go-to ratio is is, is the big spoon and and the shorter sh- the shorter length paddle, if 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 I felt that the circumstances needed that. Um, and from Freya, actually, I called up Hank and Ferbs the one day and I said. Um, I'm focusing now on surf ski. I'm getting back in the ocean. I'm obviously going to Hong Kong World Champs. I think I need a smaller paddle. Like maybe I'd be going faster if I had a slightly, slightly less load. So Hank said, cool, all right, I'll bring the whole range to, to the dam. Um, and you bring any other paddles you've ever paddled with and liked, and let's test them. Um, and we tested the paddles until we were blue in the face. And true as Bob, the whole thing backfired because the paddle that I loved the most and ended up going the fastest with the most consistently was the Odin L, which was bigger than the Freya. (laughs) So, um, yeah, what will be, will be. Uh, After that day, uh, I went with the Odin L and I've loved it ever since. And, and yeah, I'm human. I have days when I think, oh, maybe I should try something else. And um, I play with the length. and. I, I can't fault it. I've loved it. It suits me. I don't get fist pump. I don't get, you know, I haven't had injuries from it. Um, I don't think we get injuries from our equipment. I think our bodies start to fail when we've overtrained them. So when I have had neck niggles or shoulder niggles, it's generally been because I'm tired and not listening to my body. Um, so that's me. So that's me with Gara now. And um, that's me with Odin L. And it's, it's been a great paddle for me. So if anyone wants to know any questions on it, then by all means, give me a shout. And I think it's just about, testing different paddles same thing with boats like don't just get stuck with one try what's out there um and don't be afraid to ask questions you yeah.
0: so so i had a question here which i'm actually chickened out of i wanted to ask you if you couldn't use a carbonology ski what would you use but i kind of realise that's going to put you on the spot because <laughs> I, I, know, I know hein well i know jason okay. and, they, and they've 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 really really looked after you and, and hats off guys from carbonology they also supported yeah. the student paddle but so let me let me mix this question up a little bit for, for you. Within the carbonology range, we've got boats like the Flash, which are a little more traditional high volume skis, ones like we've got that we've got used to from from the likes of Fenn and Epic, they're in that mold. Um, but you've chosen to sit in a pulse, which is a pretty low volume, almost K one like mm-hmm. ski. What are you looking for in a surf ski when you when you're trying to decide what's gonna work for you?
1: Well, I think the truth of the matter is that there's we could all, we could all, if we were, if we were able to, we could have more than one ski because there's more than one condition to to deal with, um, and that's kind of where, where I got to with choosing skis was, yes, there might be there might be theories that in, in bigger in bigger swell and bigger conditions the longer boat with the more rocker, you know, in the smaller flatter conditions the the shorter boat that's more like a K one, yeah, hundred percent, you know, that's why Revo's making boats and that's why. Nasna Racing's making boats. That's why all these new short skis are coming out. Um, but what does the athlete do or the, the person do who's only got money for one boat? And and my decision was simple. You, you choose the boat that you are going to get – well, you choose the boat for the, the conditions that you will get 90% of the time. Um, and I felt at that time in, in Durban that we were getting relatively small, flat conditions most of the time. Um, And, and for me, the pulse is, is an absolute no brainer. Um, It's a woman's boat. It's short, it's low volume. It feels like a K1. It responds beautifully. um, It handles the downwind beautifully. And and I hadn't needed to test it in anything monstrous. Um, So yeah, it was an, it was an easy decision once I'd made it. um, And it's, it stood the test of time for me. And, And the funny thing is me and that boat have like, have grown together and where maybe before I couldn't handle the boat in, in bigger downwinds, it wasn't the boat's fault, it was me. And now I've gotten better and, and I think I'm handling the pulse better than I did two years ago, which is, which is awesome because it was always good for me for what I needed it for predominantly. And now it's, um, you know, now we're working really well together in, in the downwind as well. So I'm, I'm stoked with that. But, you know, I also I haven't paddled a million different boats. So would I go differently in another boat? Maybe. Um but, but the pulse hasn't left me wanting so far. Um and, and that's you know, that's that's the honest truth. Um but but I can't say what I'd be like in other boats.
0: Yeah, certainly breaking the Molokai record in one of the biggest uh, conditions of Molokai that have been around for, I don't know, you know six, seven years is, is a testament yeah. to, to how well you, know, you and that boat are, are blending together. But mo- moving on from that, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a little multi- multidisciplinary. Hit my tongue around that one. And I think last year <laughs> in the uh, the ladies' uh, K2 World Marathon Champs, I, I certainly watched the event live. Um, I think you guys were in the mix all the way until the end for the podium. If I'm not mistaken, you ended up mm. fourth, am I right? Yeah, you and Michelle yeah, had, we were fit. had a fantastic paddle. Um, uh, so I want to I ask you you're know, you coming from, and uh, you were paddling with Michelle, who's you know, a phenomenal surf ski paddler, particularly in the rough stuff. What did, what did you learn from Michelle, and, and, and what did you take from surf ski that you found helped you in marathons, if anything? Was there any crossover of the skills that you yeah. felt maybe gave you an edge in certain kind of conditions within the marathon champs?
1: Yes, definitely. I think I think one of the obvious things with with surf ski and marathon racing is is the distance. Um, it's almost to the K, 26, 26, you know, 28, 28. So, the, so the mileage is very similar. Um, so already there, you've got you've got two disciplines that are benefiting, fin- benefiting each other from a physiological point of view in terms of training and and being on the water and racing for two hours. Um, so Michelle and I are both coming from from quite competitive surf ski racing. It was quite easy for us to get our head around a 26k race. Um, I think, you know, from the outset, marathon paddling looks like flat water paddling. And why would a surf ski paddler who likes wind, especially someone like Michelle who thrives in the wind, you know, why would she want to get on flat water? But there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of 10 stroke, 15 stroke, 20 stroke intervaling that happens um, in marathon paddling and not always 10 strokes. Sometimes it's just um, you know, two or three quick strokes around the turning can or coming out of a portage or, or somebody else took up the pull and you've got to quickly get over a wave. And that stuff, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's exhausting um, and it's, it's tough mentally to to go and stop and go and stop and then you were just getting comfortable on the wave and then, you know, the German crew took off and now you've got to get over somebody else's wave. And that's what downwind paddling is like. You um, you know, it's not just catching one wave at the start of DUC and twenty six k's later rocking up at Umshloti on the same wave. You you interval to get on a on a run and then you back off and then your paddle's down and then as soon as you were about to take your water bottle the, the wave changed and you had to go again. And so I think people people don't realize how similar it can be in that regard. Um you're reading the water the whole time, you're concentrating the whole time, and I think that's a lot of what happens in marathons. Um and and yeah, to be completely honest you've got to look at someone like Hank McGregor, like he's, he's always made surf ski part of his racing, his, his training. Um, and he's the best marathon paddler in the world. So, so something is working there for him. Um, and I think, at, you know, at times people were saying, no, if you want to be a marathon paddler, you can't do surf ski. And I disagreed. And I think Michelle and I proved that, um, to a certain degree last year, uh, we were both relatively inexperienced marathon paddlers. And, um, yeah, we we did a good job at, at World Marathon Champs and and actually the only time we fell off that bunch was on the very last portage and I'll take the blame for that. I should have put us in a different spot, perhaps. It would have changed the race. But yeah, we were literally we were within sniffing distance of a medal, um until five hundred meters to go. So so I think that's I think that's not so bad for Sirsky paddlers. There's gotta be something in it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was a hang of a race to watch. I was on on the I was on the edge of my seat. And and a shout out to uh, to the World Marathon Pad um, Organization in, in Meritzberg for putting on some fantastic coverage. Phenomenal. Mm. I'm looking forward to. It was it. amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. But let me flip the question around. What did you learn from that marathon experience that you're now using in ski
1: Your how to be tough because marathon racing is mentally mentally tough. Um, it's uh it's a it's a cruel sport. You know you in some ways it's boring. You know, you, 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 you're grinding hard on this flat lap. You so nervous of who's going to do what and are you going to be able to counter their move? Um, It's like a, yeah, it's like a two hour game of chess and your heart rates at 165 the whole way. Um, And, and I think you, I think I just, I, I think marathon racing always reminds me like how tough you've got to be. And that's why someone like, like Jenna Ward is just, she's just a tough paddler with a massive big heart. like, she knows how to hang in in a, in a marathon race. And, and I've learned that from them. Like in marathon racing, you've got to hang in. It's, um, and I think then when you go into surf ski paddling, you you appreciate like the beauty of surf ski. And it's not any less tough physically. Like you can see the photos of me after Malika, like I am man down on the deck. It's, it's physically exhausting, but it, it makes me realize like how lucky we are to still be catching runs and, and to being out in the wild ocean whilst doing something that's very tough. Um. So, yeah, I think marathon is there to, to well, for me, it, it certainly um, it teaches me a lesson and, and keeps me humble and, and makes me more grateful for surfski paddling.
0: So where to from here? You're world champ, unofficial, and official world champ. What's, what's next? What are we going to see, see from you over the next 24 months? And then what are we going to see from you over the next 48 months? And, and, and where's, where's Hayley Nixon 10 years from now in this sport?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great it's a great question. Um, for the next the next six months to a year, there's there's just the most amazing opportunities coming up in surfski surf ski paddling and racing all around the world. Um, especially in the next the next six months, um, several races. I mean, yeah, so many. So, um, I'm 100% um focused on on racing surf ski. Um, obviously, I'm going to marathons now, and I'm I'm very much hoping that um that I'll qualify for the marathon team. So there'll be a marathon race in Portugal as well, but that'll piggyback with with races like the Nello Summer Challenge and the Irish um, Irish Coast um, Surfski Champs. Um, And then it's the Sean Partners races in Australia, as well as the Hong Kong Dragon Run, the Mauritius Ocean Classic. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, The scary thing is the last four months of the year, I'll probably only spend six weeks in South Africa, which is a frightening thought um but it's a really exciting place to be as an athlete because it it almost feels like we are professionals um and and that's you know that's incredible that's that's really exciting And, and i'm very grateful that i'm still involved in paddling right now because this is kind of what we've been working towards and um we might actually be able to you know launch ski paddling into a whole new platform you know for next year onwards so it's an exciting time to be here um i am 34 years old um I love paddling so much. I wish I had found it 10 years ago um, because I feel like I'm actually in the best condition of my life. And the thought of having to change that path to either focus on, on work, working career or, or a family more is, is, is actually quite devastating. Um, but I'm not going to cross that bridge yet. I know for the next year that this is, that this is where I want to be. If I get the opportunity to defend my title as, as world champion um, next year, that would be, that would be amazing. Um, but but thereafter, like I want to, I want to f- find a way to stay in the sport, somewhat like someone like Oscar, um, to coach, to give clinics. Um, I'd love to run some races and to actually put my money where my mouth is. You know, it's very easy to s- to sit as an athlete or as a female and and point fingers at race organizers. But yeah, I, I want to get out there and, and see if I can run some races and um, yeah, just just keep growing the sport. And um, you know, I mentioned to you earlier. I think as surf ski paddlers, we out in the ocean, we we get to embrace like the beauty that is paddling in the ocean. But how much are we doing for the ocean? So, so certainly for me is to try and um, align myself with um, some good campaigns and some good charities, things like um, plastic free oceans, um, because I think we not we're not talking about it enough as surf ski paddlers, and um, we could definitely give more back. Um, even, even your event. And I, I say this honestly, having, you know, having Bambi Warehouse on board, it was good to see a green event. It's the first surf ski race I've seen where there was a massive banner up, you know, with, with, um, slogans about anti-plastic, like it's about time. Um, so yeah, I'd love to be an ambassador for that, um, for girls in the sport and, um, yeah, just for kind of leaving the earth a little bit better than we, that we found it.
0: Yeah, uh, a, 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 a cause very, very dear to my heart, and 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 something simple, as you say, let's 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 take it, let's take it from the space of talking about, and let's do something about. It. And I want to challenge to every, challenge every paddler out there. And even if you're not a paddler, I want to give you two two things you guys can do right now. And one, if you wherever you go, just take three, take five. And what I mean by that, if you're on the beach, and it doesn't have to be the beach, it can be anywhere pick up three pieces of trash, pick up five pieces of trash and dispose of them responsibly. Sometimes just throwing them in the trash can seems like a good spot, but if the wind blows it out or if the, 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 the guys collecting the trash aren't doing the right things with it, it ends up back in the ocean. But a good start is to, is to hit the beach, pick up three, pick up five. The other thing you can do is, uh, and something I learned from David Mocker and I've started doing as well, is Eco Bricks. Eco Bricks is simply a two-liter Coke bottle that you put in your surf ski and as you pedal past plastic, stop pick up that plastic i know it might slow down your paddle but it's worth it and stuff it into that coke bottle and eventually that that coke bottle becomes a brick that can be used to build a house it takes plastic out of the environment and it's something you can do right now you don't have to pay anything join anything do anything you just got to pick up the garbage that you see so a little soapbox rent from from me there but uh, yeah, yeah i'm really you know i think it's 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 terrible the amount of uh, plastic we paddle past and picking it up is actually, you know, treating a symptom. We need to treat the cause and, and, and actually get single-use plastics out of our out of our out of life. But I, I want to bring it to a close. There, we've been going on for ages. It's Been fantastic hosting you, and um, you know, you, you've been you've been a, a pleasure and an an inspiration. And uh, I'm really excited that you were the first of uh, of the. Uh, of the podcast guests that we've had. Hopefully we're going to have you on again and uh, best of luck with SA marathons coming up. I think it's this coming weekend. Um, and uh, I'll be backing you the The, the, the ladies uh, marathons in South Africa is pretty competitive now. I think it's in fact as well. I think women's paddling uh, at the top end is looking very, very healthy in this country. We just need to bolster some of the, uh, some of the numbers. And uh, I think Haley, you and I are going to keep working on that and trying to make that, uh, make that happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Robin, and, and thanks to you. This was awesome. It's your first time, and, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think you, you hosted a really great session. I certainly loved it, and uh, you, you put me on the spot a few times, but uh, I think we had some good, some good discussions. So well done to you, and I hope this grows, and, and I'm keen to be back anytime
0: fantastic Haley. it's uh it's getting late here on a monday night in south africa so both Haley and i want to hit the sack and uh we are 2000ks <laughs> apart so uh no, nothing dodgy there guys but
1: uh <laughs> thanks so thanks much Kevin. for
0: tuning in everybody Haley, thanks for coming coming on board and thanks very much podcasts, uh, once a month if the real job doesn't get in the way uh maybe every two months but we'll see what we can do and uh, guys thanks for tuning in and uh we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll hit you up in the next podcast as soon as we can that's it guys that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did tune in next time for all things paddling
1: with sasurfski.com